first of all, you're looking good in this album photo with Pacifica. <laughs> oh, thanks. No one can tell that you're four foot ten. <laughs> Compared to you, everyone looks like they're four foot ten. This is fair. Welcome back to Soundboard, the Steinway & Sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. I'm your producer and host, Ben Finan, director of content at Steinway & Sons and editor-in-chief of the online music magazine, listenmusicculture.com. If you enjoy Soundboard, please rate, review, and subscribe to it wherever you pod your casts. My guest today is Anthony McGill, principal clarinet of the New York Philharmonic. He is the first African-American principal of the orchestra since its founding in 1842. McGill maintains a dynamic international solo and chamber music career, and his latest release with the Pacifica Quartet is American Stories on Sedia Records. Anthony, last time we spoke, we were eating expensive but excellent Wiener Schnitzel in the Mitte district of Berlin. And we were discussing Beethoven symphonies. That sounds really fancy. <laughs> <laughs> we're talking Beethoven as dorks do. And I said that I'm an odd numbered symphony guy, three, five, seven, nine. Those are my jams. And you said, no, you're wrong. Even numbers are where it's at because they have the best clarinet parts. Yeah, you're definitely wrong about that. Um, so I'm, I'm glad you've come to the come into the light because uh, you went back, I'm sure, and listened to all the famous recordings, and you were like, you know, there is a clarinet playing in those symphonies, actually. Well, here's what I did realize from that convo, which is you probably approach concert repertoire from the perspective of a clarinetist. So I guess what I'd like to know first off is what concert rep, when it rolls around, as a principal clarinetist, do you get especially excited to play? Okay, I have, a, I have a short list. That's not very hard, because these are the greatest pieces ever written, just for the record, again. <laughs> Respighi, Pines of Rome is one of them. Uh, I know that's your favorite work, <laughs> symphonic repertoire. Uh, Rachmaninoff's Second Symphony, um, that's your second favorite piece, I'm sure. And... Oh, gosh. It, actually, the list is kind of long. It's not a short list. Sibelius one, Sibelius First Symphony uh, is another great one. Basically, any... Oh, uh, Kodai um, Dances of Galanta. Any symphony or symphonic work with a clarinet solo that lasts more than a few minutes <laughs> is a candidate for this honor. Yeah, not embarrassed to say. But those are pretty good, pretty good works. I'm going to revisit with the ear of a clarinetist and have another listen from the woodwind angle. I have a general idea of what a concert master does, I think, in the context uh, of the orchestra. Right. In the context of the orchestra, of the New York Philharmonic, what are your musical and extra musical duties as principal clarinetist? Well, my musical duties are to play the aforementioned clarinet solos in the repertoire and you know to be fair a lot of the wind parts are soloistic they're kind of like the soloists of the orchestra you know sitting back in the back but we get um, a chance to shine and so we kind of get to play a lot of these gorgeous melodies and then the strings take over and play their melodies the entire piece of course 
you know, so my job is to play all of those. And it's usually in a section of about four players. And some of the repertoire just has two clarinets. But yeah, so my part is the the solo part in that group. And extra musically, I... Uh, I kind of assign the parts for the year in the orchestra. So depending on what piece we're playing, like I said, we may have two clarinets playing or we'll have four or five or sometimes six clarinets playing, depending on which which instruments each person in the in the section plays. So there's a bass clarinetist. Obviously, the bass clarinetist will play the bass clarinet part. The E-flat player will play the E-flat part. But if there is some rotation, meaning that if the associate player, the associate principal player is usually the, also the E-flat clarinet player, they often play some short pieces on the first half of the program, for instance. So I will go through the, all of the repertoire for the year and kind of divvy up some of those rotations within the section. That's about it. I mean, you, you know, you kind of, everyone kind of does their own thing. You know, everyone can handle their parts and their music. So there isn't that much conversation that happens in orchestra. But when there is, it's like, okay, let's try this one section so we can sound good on it, you know, for a rehearsal or in the performance. You usually don't have to say very much because everyone kind of plays well. So if something is a little off intonation-wise or anything, then we kind of work on it very briefly at the end of rehearsal or during a break. And I mean, work on it, meaning we play it a couple times we get it, we try to get it right, and then we're, we're, we see it at the concert. That's interesting. I like this statement, everyone plays well. So you're not breaking out for sectionals the way I did in high school band with the percussion section, right? <laughs> no, no, not really. I mean, I'm really lucky because, uh, you know, I get to play with really great players. So I think trust is a really important part of leading any section, but also just being a part of any section in an orchestra is that you trust that everyone, everyone is trying to sound good. Everyone generally is practicing to do so. And when it's not happening, it's a combination of all of us, you know, that need to work on something. So it's never like, you're out of tune. No, it's usually like, we just need to adjust our pitch so we're playing together in the right place. It's not so difficult. I mean, it's not one of those situations where, in the old days where section members didn't talk for 30, 40 years or anything like that. No one wants that. I've heard old stories like that. Yeah. It's kind of like the NFL, right? The coach doesn't have to give a halftime locker room speech. These guys are motivated and they came to play and they've worked their butts off to be in the position that they're in. So extra motivation, whether it's positive or negative, is not going to be required at this level, I would think. No, not really. I mean, I think if anyone is, is kind of in charge of that, coach position, it would be the music director or the conductor on the podium. And no one wants to be talked to like their music director when you're playing in a clarinet section <laughs> by another clarinetist. That doesn't go over so well. As a principal, do you have a special direct relationship with your conductor slash music director, wherein he might give you information that you would transmit to the rest of the players? Or is it like you just said, no news is good news when coming from the podium. Oh, totally. No news is definitely good news. I think, yes, I would be the conduit, I guess, if there were, if there was an issue that needed to be addressed, that would be the flowchart of that information. But conductors often talk directly from the podium to anybody in the orchestra that they would like to. Mm -hmm. It's unnecessary to kind of have to say, you know, well, the conductor really wants me to tell you this. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's usually pretty obvious and, and stated clearly. So there's parody at this point. Once you're at the big show, uh, in this case, the New York Philharmonic, anybody can talk to anyone on a peer-to-peer -peer level. 
Yeah, generally I'd say so. Yeah, it's a pretty, and maybe I think different orchestras have different vibes. And, you know, like every other orchestra, we've had periods where it's been like kind of probably rocky in the past. <laughs> you know, people were, were different at the workplace back in the day. But now I think pretty much everyone can kind of talk to each other about different issues that are going on. And that usually works out. There's no, you're not writing letters or sending emails to each other. It's trying to explain, you know, <laughs> how we're not playing together in this one spot. At least I hope people aren't doing that. You, Anthony, are the first African-American principal in the history of the New York Philharmonic, which was founded in 1842, for a sense of history here. Your brother, Damari, is the principal flute of the Seattle Symphony. Now, there are not a lot of Black folks in the audience at the Philharmonic either. Black absence, of course, is not limited to classical music. I remember going to a Red Sox game at Fenway, (laughs) And I immediately, as a white dude, still felt how white it was. And I remember saying to my friend, hey, let's find a minority. Ready, set, go. And it took us a few minutes, you know, in a packed stadium. I took Steinway artist Robert Glasper once to see Steinway artist Billy Joel at MSG. And Robert said to me, I'm the only brother here. And I think that made him genuinely sad in the sense of, man, why aren't more black guys down with Billy Joel. Now, I am not a white man who asks his black guests to speak on behalf of an entire group of people. But if you have any personal thoughts you'd like to share about black representation in classical music, I would love to hear them. And I just want to say from where I sit, I think it's important. I think it's important that you are who you are and are a principal and are visible and what is widely regarded as our nation's top orchestra. Yeah, thanks for this uh, question. I think uh, and the question would be, how much time do we have? Because, <laughs> you know, there's so many different areas to talk about when you talk about this. So I'll just go with, I'll just go with one that is often, people often look at like the, the dearth of faces and they think, okay, well, that's the problem. And honestly, like I always go back to, kind of historical truths, which is that in order for people to be uh, in a place in the present, generally they would have had to be welcomed in that place, in that space in the past as a kind of, okay, you, you did it, you were allowed to do it. Now we're going to do it because we feel comfortable doing it. And for so many years of our history, our country's history, the world's history, like black faces, black bodies weren't welcome in these spaces. They weren't welcome on the stage. They weren't welcome in the audience. They weren't welcome in the buildings. They weren't welcome in the cities, frankly. And so you really do have to look at that because people are like, well, well, isn't it just about the music? It's not really about race, but actually everything was about race. If you happen to be black in America, you know, for the last hundred years. (laughs) so like that meant uh, meant everything Mm -hmm. like what you were able to do as a profession what you were able to study in school what you were able to once you did so what you were able to do with that talent and that job in the world in the space of the world so that's that's kind of where it, it all comes from for me I mean I think that's to kind of ignore that and to say 
well, you know, people aren't really interested in classical music or something like that is to kind of miss the big picture, which is that even when I was growing up in Chicago, the only reason I got an opportunity to play music was mainly because there was a music program started specifically because music was taken out of the public schools in Chicago. Public schools in Chicago, predominantly Black and minority. Of course, they always say it's because of budgetary reasons, but I think it's other things. You know, there were people leaving these neighborhoods and all the kids used to get music education in the cities until all the kids living in the inner city happened to be Black and Brown. And so this program kind of allowed me to study music at a really high level. And it's kind of part of the reason I'm here, because my parents also believed in arts and music education and all of that other stuff. Those things aren't accidental. They're connected to that concept of of the value in the world and where value is placed in the world based on issues surrounding race and class and economics, socioeconomic issues. So that's kind of... Um, that's kind of one angle to take about it. And so I think that what's happening now, and I see people trying to, attempting to do it, is to address a lot of those issues. Address um, just equality and equity and inclusion when people are welcome onto the stage. Inviting more different people to like be a part of the community of orchestra and, and welcome and, and kind of find ways to welcome in communities, even though they weren't welcome before. And so I think certain organizations and certain people are realizing the value in that. It's like, okay, well, we've made lots of mistakes in the past. How do we rectify that? And so I, I do see that people are trying, some people are trying to think about that. Others are not. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And I, I think that allows us a nice segue to your album, American Stories, which when this airs will be out on Sadia Records. These stories, some of them also deal with absence and displacement. Uh, is that fair to say? Some of the uh, the works for this album, and certainly also from voices that may not be heard to the the wider classical music audience. Yeah, it's really it's really interesting, you know, how this album came together, and of course, how why we named it American Stories. For the last few years, of course, I've been thinking a lot about who we are as Americans, who we are as, as citizens of this country. Part of that has been kind of connecting with so many different people and people being allowed to tell their stories, but they, your, your story might be totally different than mine, but how do we come together um, for shared values and shared beauty as, as human beings? And I think that the composers on this album their own personal histories, but also what's um, kind of embedded in each individual piece that has kind of a story behind it. Um, and how I met the Pacifica Quartet and I met them there in the music um, and, and kind of wanted to share that with the world. And I think that's, uh, that's what this is about. This is like, we're, we can, we're all so different. We're all so different, but is, that's kind of like what makes us interesting and beautiful and talented and expressive as Americans, I believe. Yeah. And it's supposed to be at least part of the American experience, right? Of this yeah. disparate yet shared experience. Yeah, completely. And I think music is a good place to start with it because uh, 
people think of about American music, you can't just really point to one thing and say, okay, that's it. You know, <laughs> sure. No, you can't because everyone's so different. Everyone's come different from different places, different backgrounds. And especially in American classical music, it's actually very rich because of like our totally different identities, um, geographically, racially, along religious lines, all of these things. That's what makes us, you know, who we are. And that's what makes our music what it is. And uh, that's actually very uniquely American in a, in a beautiful way. Musically speaking, listening to this album, I was naively reminded of how well uh, clarinet pairs with string quartet in terms of the tone and the texture, the, the readiness of the clarinet and the ruddiness of the strings, this overlap in pitch field. Uh, and that was a great <laughs> chamber music reminder for me of this special pairing. Yeah, I mean, that's really kind of you to say. I mean, because I think so. I think it blends beautifully. That's why I love love playing with string quartet. I mean, it's something, I think it's what I do the most in my life. You know, those blendings of uh, the sounds can be jarringly different at times, but also, you know, the sound in the low register of the clarinet paired with the cello. I mean, it, uh, there's nothing. Yeah, sometimes you literally can't distinguish those two instruments for a moment, and that's a very special trick to pull off. Right? I, th I know. It's like, it's really cool to, to do that. Are there different priorities for you when you're in a chamber setting like that, as opposed to in a principal clarinet New York Phil situation? Yeah, I think the priorities are um, just slightly shifted. They're similar priorities, but they're just in the way they're executed are, are a little bit different. So, you know, when I'm on the stage with like 90 other people, you know, I have to work, of course, a bit harder at uh, <laughs> listening across the stage, trying to figure out who, who I'm playing with, who I should be uh, in tune with. And sometimes that's more challenging than, say, trying to tune with a violist that's sitting, you know, two feet away from me. So that's the main difference. I think you're listening in kind of similar ways. When you're in the larger group, of course, at times you're not, you're definitely not the most important voice. You're kind of trying to blend in there and you're, you're completely buried sometimes in the orchestra. You're never really going to be, your sound uh, is buried sometimes. But obviously that's not going to happen when you're playing uh, with four string players. So that actually makes it that makes it a lot of fun. Like, how do you come back in the balance? How do you recede in the balance in a quintet versus an orchestra? It's very easy to get lost in an orchestra sound. But how do you do that and allow the violinist to come through or the cellist to come through in a in a quintet? So the synth, the level of sensitivity is actually heightened. The amount of soft playing that you can do is for me, just the most enjoyable thing to do in chamber music. Um, when you do it in orchestra, basically the whole orchestra has to drop out and like, has to be a clarinet solo there. <laughs> We're back to Pines of Rome. We're back to Pines of Rome and Sibelius One and all those pieces where no one else is playing. In, in quintet writing, clarinet quintet writing, you obviously get much more, many more opportunities to um, play with the sweet, softest sound of the instrument. There's one work I'd like to focus on specifically, which is Shotgun Houses by Valerie Coleman. I love the energy of this piece. And I think it's always hard to instill a programmatic arc to chamber music, given the, the forces 
that you're working with. But I, I really buy the Muhammad Ali narrative <laughs> in this piece, Married with East Louisville. Uh, what can you share with us about your experience with shotgun houses? I discovered this piece just uh, just during the pandemic. All the other pieces on the album are world premiere recordings, but this was premiered by the um, Harlem Quartet. And they invited me to play a streamed performance during the pandemic with them. And I just fell in love with this work, with this piece, because there are so many different connections. And like you said, with the story behind it, not only the story of Muhammad Ali and, and Cassius Clay and, and, and what, what he represents as far as, as pride and identity and nationalism goes and success and talent. Um, international success and talent, but uh, Valerie's history, Valerie Coleman, who's the composer's history. And I didn't know that, you know, her family knew their family and they, uh, she's from the, the same neighborhood. All of these kind of little connections like that were really interesting to me. And I think the music is infused with this energy, as you mentioned, but also this like personal sound. And I know Valerie's music because I've recorded some of her other pieces and, and have played some of her other clarinet works and it's all in there. And it's like, it's like that started getting us thinking about what is the composer's own personal history and identity? How does that get wrapped up in the way they express music? And then on top of that, you have this, this great picture of these actual um, historical moments with Muhammad Ali and these these victorious sounds and these battle scenes and all of these things that we do and composers do in operatic music and um, and scores and, and things like this that we all understand. But to have that be such a have such a picture, even without a, a narrator, how music can tell that story. We always talk about music telling a story and how it can do that. But to have it really do that, as you mentioned, is so, uh, so rare. And I think uh, it's, it's just fun to play. So when I'm on stage playing that piece with the Pacificas, like, and I'm like moving in my chair, kind of battling, kind of fighting, weaving and bobbing, bobbing and weaving while I'm playing. It's Ali style. Yeah, exactly. It's like I'm channeling my, uh, <laughs> my inner boxer, you know, I mean, I know, uh, I don't know if they have a weight class for my uh, <laughs> definitive <laughs> height, but, you know, <laughs> if uh, if I could be, be. You can rock out in the featherweight division. You can yeah, right. It's. I mean, it's a lot. Yeah. I just went to the gym this morning, so, you know, I have a little yeah. bulk on me. But it's fun to do that with music. It's a lot safer, I think, to participate in that kind of in boxing when you're playing that. Thank you.
I see that you are performing the U.S. premiere of an Esnapeka Salonen work, uh, which I will let you pronounce. Oh, I'm not going to give it a go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'll say it. Uh, kinema. Let's just leave it at that. Yeah. that's The fans can, um, can correct me in the comments. Salonen's one of my favorite guys, both at the podium and as a composer for his voice. Did you learn anything in, in your experience with this piece or is it, is it something yet to come on the season? Oh yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's coming in February actually. I just know that he writes some of the most gorgeous and fantastical uh, music for, for clarinet, but also some of the most difficult music for clarinet. And um, so he, there's always a challenge there, but it's always like, it's playable. It's just, wow. It takes so much intensity and so much focus, but he writes these gorgeous, gorgeous, talk about great clarinet writing. Some of the, I think some of the orchestral works that I'm going to channel that he wrote, one of them is Nick's, it has talk about a huge clarinet solo. It just goes on for like multiple pages. And at the end of this beautiful, lyrical, challenging, technical clarinet solo, it ends on a high C, which <laughs> he throws in there. And I think this concerto also has things like that. It's like you play for, I don't know, 20 or so minutes, and then it ends on the highest note possible for the instrument, you know, just, just, to, just because. And, and so as far as the great composers always were able to um, demonstrate an instrument's capacity for everything, technique, beauty, warmth, pain, lyricism, articulation. And Esapeka does that. He's exploring what are the expressive capabilities of this instrument. Fortunately, he wrote a piece for clarinet and strings because just that sound alone is so expressive and to expand it in the concerto form, you know, from, from something smaller, like a clarinet quintet, as we discussed before is, is wonderful. And I'm so glad that uh, he asked me to do the U S premiere. So I'm not nervous at all. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, I'll, I'll take us out with my favorite Esapeka Salonen joke, which is, what is the difference between a Finnish introvert and a Finnish extrovert? The Finnish introvert, when he's speaking to you, he looks at his shoes. And the Finnish extrovert, when he's speaking to you, looks at your shoes. <laughs> well, I found that funny. I'm not sure how funny anyone else will. So. But I, That's all right. That's all right. This is all for us, you know?
You've been listening to Soundboard, the Steinway and Sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. We heard a clip from Shotgun Houses by Valerie Coleman on the album American Stories on Sedia Records, the latest release from clarinetist Anthony McGill and the Pacifica Quartet. Our intro music is Philip Glass's Mad Rush, performed on a Steinway Model M by me, Ben Finan, editor-in-chief at listenmusicculture.com. Our outro music is Ottorino Respighi's Pines of Rome, performed by the New York Philharmonic under the baton of Alan Gilbert on the New York Philharmonic label. Question for the podcast? Email me at info at steinway.com with the subject heading soundboard. Message me on Facebook at Steinway or hit me on the gram at Steinway and Sons. Subscribe to Soundboard on Spotify, Apple Music, Deezer, or wherever you pod your casts. Thank you for listening. Thank you.